Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. The usual two guests today, Sochi Namaka, director of the New York State Working Families Party, will explain to the rest of the world just how awful our governor, Andrew Cuomo, is. And then Susie Bright will look into what the pandemic has done to our sexual and romantic lives, a vastly undercovered but vastly important part of human life. First, Andrew Cuomo. Now in his third term as governor, apparently thoughtful and compassionate, Cuomo developed a national reputation last summer for his daily pandemic briefings as the anti-Trump. Many New Yorkers knew better. Not only was his mismanagement of the early COVID crisis responsible for thousands of needless deaths, particularly in nursing homes, he also had a long history of personal viciousness and loyalty to the rich that made him a lot more Trump-like than most people knew. Then, in late February, Ron Kim, a member of the State Assembly from Queens, revealed the contents of a phone call from Cuomo in which he threatened to destroy him politically for criticizing his deadly mismanagement of COVID. Then, a few days later, Lindsay Boylan, a former Cuomo staffer, revealed her personal history of harassment by the governor. Soon, Boylan was joined by several other women who described unwelcome advances and otherwise demeaning treatment by Cuomo. The state attorney general, Letitia James, launched an inquiry into the matter, and the state legislature set in motion its impeachment machinery, though it's not clear whether that will go anywhere. Here to tell us more about this deposed hero, he was never a hero to me, I never liked him, but many others did, is Sochi Namaka, director of the New York State Working Families Party. The WFP was founded in New York in 1998 and has since spread to other parts of the country. Its initial idea was to take advantage of a quirk of New York State ballot law that allows parties to cross-endorse candidates running on other parties' lines and to use that power of endorsement to push state politics to the left. For years, Cuomo ran the show with little challenge. That began changing several years ago when a slate of socialist and other left candidates gained seats in the legislature and dislodged a crew of conservative Democrats who had voted like Republicans. That gang of conservative Democrats was very pleasing to Cuomo since he didn't want any part of progressive bills that the non-conservative Democrats in the legislature might pass. Now those conservative Dems are gone, replaced by an energetic crew of left lawmakers, and Cuomo is on the ropes. Here's Sochi Nomica with more. Your party has a very complicated history with uh, the governor. You endorsed him in 2014, uh, ran against him four years later, and then he tried to destroy you the following year. So <laughs> could just recount that history to um, set the stage for uh, the rest of the conversation. Yeah, I mean, complicated is a nice uh, adjective to uh, throw into the mix. There's no secret that the Working Families Party has had a long and contested history with Andrew Cuomo primarily about issues of policy difference, you know, whether it's his foot dragging around campaign finance reform, his refusal to fully fund education, his collusion with uh, renegade Democrats who caucus with Republicans to stymie progressive change. There is a host of differences, his centering of corporate interests and his billionaire donors uh, over working people. There have been a host of issues on which we've pushed the governor time and time again, some of which he has conceded grounds on like the $15 minimum wage, uh, the first billionaire's tax, uh, the first billionaire's tax in New York, rather, in 2009. Uh, and what we've seen over these years is that the governor is a politician who's fundamentally hostile to interests that are not perfectly aligned with his own. Uh, and so there are two modes, as they proudly recount, as though it's party slogan, right? It is win or kill. <laughs> and their inability to capture movement, right, to capture the WFP in many ways, encouraged him to pursue the kill route. Uh, and in particular, this past year, after we ran uh, and elected a group of clearly progressive and left elected officials up and down the state to replace the IDC, right, these renegade Democrats, and shift the balance of power in Albany, he then snuck in a provision into the budget that tripled the party threshold required for minor parties to qualify on the ballot, specifically targeting the Working Families Party ability to run their own candidates, our own candidates on our line. And that was just a clear demonstration of the 
targeting retaliation and hostility towards independent actors in New York State in a place where he feels that there's no space for alternative viewpoints for left for progressive movements that do not align perfectly with his own interests. When you talk about his own interests and how hostile he is to anything that crosses those, how much of that is political and how much of that is personal with him? I think what we're seeing now as the stories are coming out is that they're all one and the same. It is the way he does politics, the way he operates and governs, and the policy that comes out of it are all located in a kind of narcissist locus right inside the governor's being. His ultimate goal is to dominate and to win. And so the political mode that that manifests itself in is silencing of opposition, consolidation within the party, ostracization and targeting of specific actors who speak out. You know, we saw the bullying of Ron Kim. Ron Kim deigned to share evidence, right? The assembly member who was uh, whose career was threatened to be destroyed by Cuomo. And then you saw an unleashing, a torrent of stories that people have, whether it's reporters or staff or uh, progressive leaders or elected uh, leaders who describe suffering the rage and uh, retaliation of the governor for daring to say something out of turn. And so the politics are one of consolidation, one of fear, one of party discipline under one party voice. And the policy that we see comes out of that are centering of corporate interests, sneaking of, of clauses into budgets to protect you know, nursing home operators, a widening wealth gap uh, and uh, increased segregation in the state of New York. Those converge in a Governor Cuomo administration, and we're seeing the fallout of that as people are coming out and putting their stories on, on the front pages. It's remarkable to see this sudden unleashing of this torrent of <laughs> dislike for the guy. I mean, it's no secret that he's one of the extremely disliked person. Um, was it Richard Rabbit said in the New York Times the other day, nobody likes him, he has no friends, and <laughs> when you get into trouble, it shows. But people kept that under wraps for the longest time, and then suddenly the dam burst, first with the Ron Kim story and then with Lindsey Boylan. What's been going on? People just been biting their tongues for all these years because he's so vicious and vengeful? I mean, it's quite possible that Governor Cuomo is the most powerful governor since Nelson Rockefeller. He has worked through silencing, excluding any other forces within his party and outside of and, and outside of his party quite steadily for many years. And the mode, right, that he operated under, which is to call to bully, to threaten, and to levy really good threats. I mean, this is the whole power of his governing, is that he has almost total control over the state, whether it is through the power of his pen, his ability to, you know, veto bills, to kill key legislative priorities for labor, for progressives, for, you know, other activist groups, whether it's his ability to ostracize and render irrelevant leaders who go against him, right, to take people's political power away and to have their colleagues start to mistrust him. He uses all fronts. And so what we saw when Ron deigned to speak is that he had a whole host of leaders who had been elected through no doing of the governor, right? So once the Working Families Party and allied organizations across the state took out the IDC, there was one clear site of power that the governor no longer had access to. And then you see the leadership of Andrew Stewart Cousins, who is much more comfortable being oppositional to the governor uh, than past leaders have been. You see an assembly with lots of independent voices who owe nothing to the Democratic Party. And so this influx of independent progressive socialist leaders coming into government, the whole balance of power was massively disturbed. And so you start hearing this, you know, gallery of voices echoing people's claims, right? This is in many ways a resurgence of Me Too, not only located in sexual harassment, which we then saw as Lindsay Boylan's story, but the Me Too of, I as well have been verbally abused, taunted, blacklisted, exiled by the governor only because I dared to have different policy positions than him, only because I dared to advocate for something that did not line up with his interests. And so this coalition across the state of those who've been targeted and had the governor's bullseye on them, whether as staff directly under his control, whether as a legislative leader trying to move forward necessary changes uh, for their communities, 
have created this broad base who are saying governance doesn't have to be this way. And governance becomes impossible when you have a bully who refuses to work with partners in government, then allowed 14 members of the congressional delegation to also say you are unfit to serve uh, because you have no allies in, in this country and our democracy. Allies are kind of a requirement to governance. Now, the old order in Albany used to be said three men in the room made all the crucial decisions, particularly around the budgets. But big decisions were these three guys, the leaders of the two houses of the uh, legislature and the governor. That old order has been blown apart now in recent years, right? So what, what's taken its place? What we see are leaders who are quite beholden and uh, very influenced by their membership. Those changed a lot. Their membership, whose rules don't come through plush committee gigs, but whose power actually comes from their ability to speak independently and the fact that they came in often as challengers in primaries uh, and therefore did not make their way up the institutional ladders of the Democratic Party, uh, but who have fundamentally independent base. Uh, And so in that room, those three men, right, one is actually a woman, must bring their bodies demand, right, their conferences demands, and their conference no longer speaks in one clear party line voice, but is actually has been infiltrated and infused by outside movement actors. Uh, And so the balance of power has fundamentally shifted. This year, the Democrats got a supermajority for the first time. We helped flip five seats, uh, red to blue. And what's different is that it was not simply adding Democrats to the mix. It was adding Democrats who agreed to govern as working families Democrats who all ran on taxing the rich and who understood that movement played a larger role in their election than the Democratic Party did. And therefore, their alliance um, and their allegiance was troubled once they got to Albany, was complicated. And so the balance of power had already had already shifted. It used to be that um, New York City real estate was a very important cornerstone of political power in um, the state government. And uh, we last year we saw you know a, a bunch of uh, pro-tenant legislation uh, pass, uh, stuff that um, really disturbed the real estate world. What about uh, Cuomo's relation to the developer community, you might call them, and uh, the, the, the transformation of power? He, he just can't hold on anymore, right? I think this, that was the kind of greatest crack in the foundation. You know, we reference in our piece, the New York Times story uh, that heralded or that you know, reported on these sweeping rent reforms and noted that the governor, when called by real estate lobby, had to say that he had no control and was unable to reverse the reforms that the legislature had pushed forward, right? That was a huge concession on his part and a recognition that his power was starting to fade, that he was no longer able to assuage, right, uh, captains of capital that he's got their back. And so what we're seeing, you know, obviously the Democratic Party has been captured in many ways by real estate, right, by capital who requires legislation in order to protect their profits. They have, for many years, once the Republican Party became basically a non-entity in New York State, the Democratic Party became the new locus of their power. And the chief Democrat is basically saying, sorry, you know, it's not like that anymore. And actually, my power has been limited in this. And he signed this whole host of, of legislation. We're going to see in this budget fight how, we, how well we can raise taxes on the rich and put forward other priorities that the governor has rallied and fought against for many years. But we're seeing through those policy differences, those shifts, and his inability to fundamentally protect private interests, that, that power is really waning. I'm speaking with Sochi Namaka, director of the New York State Working Families Party. Cuomo has this national reputation for being kind of liberal. He was anti-Trump. He was thoughtful. His pandemic press conferences made him a star. You know, you know, he'd been responsible for thousands of deaths earlier on in the uh, in the pandemic. What can you say to uh, a lot of listeners who might think that he's not so bad that he, you know, he was the anti-Trump for a while, um, but also that he has this reputation for being a pragmatic progressive. As I mentioned, there are clear policy differences that New Yorkers were very clear about that confirmed that Andrew Cuomo is not a progressive for many years. The stories of bullying 
as they came forward, it was quite clear that whether it's from progressives reporters, it was no secret that Andrew Cuomo governed through fear. You know, the sexual harassment cases, maybe we didn't know about them. Perhaps they were a surprise or they're a new news story, but they fell very clearly in a lineage and a style of domination, fundamentally. Yeah, it's funny. When, when this first came out, like nobody said, oh, this doesn't sound credible. Everybody said, oh, yeah, this is pretty believable. Oh, absolutely. And the governor basically said, that is factual. However, it is not true. <laughs> you know, it was a whole, it was, an it was a master class in gaslighting. You know, it was a word that everyone uses, but it will live in history as the perfect illustration of, of gaslighting. Cuomo absolutely ascended on Trump's shoulders. He was the perfect foil, the perfect counterpart to the blustering, you know, blundering, incompetent uh, administration that Trump led. And the national media and and uh, liberals across the country soaked it up. He provided the perfect counter image. And yet here in New York, as we saw how COVID was in particular, in particular devastating Black and immigrant communities, um, how we'd failed to actually get health care to all our people um, in New York State, how schools had to be kept open because that was the only chance that most kids would actually get a meal. We saw the real New York, the New York that was built on Andrew Cuomo's austerity regime, right? That was built through a refusal to invest in the public good. And so while he was accepting accolades for his perfect management of COVID and then writing his whole, his book to affirm his viewpoint, right, before historians can do their own analysis, really demonstrated the type of rule that Cuomo exerts. His fate is partly in the hands now of uh, Letitia James, who I believe working families supported in her initial run, right? Yeah, the first time uh, Lucia James ran for city council, she actually won on working families party line only. So as a third party candidate. And so we've had a long history with um, the attorney general. That makes me wonder. She was, I think, the first candidate you endorsed independently of on your own, right? Correct. Not just as a co-endorsement with a Democrat. And uh, you did that with Zephyr Ticha more recently. Um, is the party moving away from that cross-endorsement strategy and running more of your own candidates? We have uh, multiple strategic pathways that we take. As New York is has become a one-party state, as we have a blue trifecta, we know that we must influence and inform the Democrats, the Democratic strategy and ensure that the Democrat who comes out of the primary is the most progressive Democrat possible. And so we do that by recruiting our own candidates. We do that by mobilizing voters in Democratic primaries. And we do that by you know, working with reformers within the Democratic Party to ensure the party shifts over uh, to the left as a whole. And so when those Democrats are elected, they really see themselves as working families Democrat and seek to work in concert with outside forces, with our party. Think about Alessandra Biaggi or uh, Jessica Ramos or Jumani Williams. And then there are opportunities and contests in which we absolutely make uh, third party runs. What maybe it is going up against a corporate Democrat who came out of the Democratic primary. Maybe it is, or there are special elections in which parties can just put forward their own candidates head to head in a non-primary, but in a special election scenario. So we believe that we have to use all the tools at our disposal if we want to fundamentally reshape the political landscape in New York State. Uh, and so we're always looking for third party opportunities. We're always looking to shift and inform primaries. All of those things work to build the type of state that we're trying to build. What about the configuration of power in Albany now? Because you know the, the legislature, there is this Democratic supermajority on both houses and um, with an awful lot of very left people um, uh, really driving the agenda. Cuomo, whether he survives an office or not, is really very, very damaged. Um, his power is very severely reduced. What do you anticipate um, politics in the state is going to look like now that uh, uh, Mar uh, not Mario Andrew Cuomo <laughs> is so damaged? I think we'll see uh, a bunch of you know new alignments and formations. Uh, we'll see first of all leaders who have been you know moderate or you know disciplined Democrats looking for new affiliations or alliances. We've seen that already as people have been been calling for resignation or impeachment. That there are uh, there's kind of a new order of business, and we'll see a lot of new candidates pop up in different parts of the state who are excited about the surge of energy, countercultural against the um, mainstream energy 
in politics that will bring out new leaders. I think we'll see hopefully a real pressure to push forward legislation that's been halted for many years, right? This year, we're talking finally about ending solitary confinement in New York State. That would not be possible without one Democratic supermajority of of more left-leaning leaders, right? Julia Salazar, my co-writer on this piece, is carrying that legislation um, in the Senate. We're talking about decriminalizing marijuana. We're talking about taxing the rich. I think we'll see an energy and a real sprint to push forward as much progressive legislation as possible as the governor is more mired in his personal scandal and not central to negotiating the terms of key legislation. And so I think all of those things will create conditions for a more empowered, hopefully, and aligned left and progressive formation for a Democratic Party that will have its, I don't know, 37th reckoning of the past, you know, the past five years, but who will be forced to turn inwards and figure out what their leadership and governance style looks like and how they can uh, excite and bring in voters and candidates to run as Democrats. And hopefully working people will feel the meaningful difference of a different type of governance and leadership style, because we know that the governing style absolutely affects the policy outcomes. We've been saying so for years, and hopefully people will feel the material difference of having fundamental different approach to leadership coming out of Albany. Yeah, when I uh, interviewed uh, Julia Salazar soon after she took office, she said that her presence was actually bringing some Democrats to the left, that uh, they um, had previously been fairly orthodox. But seeing that you can flip the bird to real estate and still win, um, they were they were emboldened by this knowledge. Uh, and uh, do you see this sort of um, phenomenon spreading, that the, the, the broader Democratic Party is changing as uh, Cuomo is on the ropes and these rising progressive forces are taking a, a larger role? I think so. I think that happens in a couple different ways. So right, what Julia is talking about is the, the relationships and the kind of the bold way that she and her colleagues lead in Albany that does, I think, inspire, move and persuade colleagues, including many who've held their seats for decades um, and who've who've been rattled and then I think moved by this new type of leadership. Uh, I think fundamentally also it is running ideologically grounded campaigns. Uh, If you think back to Diana Richardson, who actually ran also as WFP line only in central Brooklyn in 2015, ran as one of the first candidates in the country on a no real estate pledge, explaining and recognizing the corrosive effect that real estate plays in our communities. You know, Tiffany Caban's race for district attorney forced people to ask the question of what role prosecutors must play in any mass incarceration. Julia also ran on a strong rejection of real estate money pledge. And so having those ideologically grounded campaigns, making it clear what boundaries, uh, what barriers candidates are setting up around themselves to separate them from corporate interests, and then being you know, buoyed and lifted into leadership by community forces, by groups, and not by police unions, not by real estate lobbies, not by the charter school industry, does show fundamentally different model. And we're hoping then that that will shift people's understanding of what both what is viable, you know, what viability looks like for elected officials, but also what a rejection of private interest looks like in races. And then how does that then allow you to lead from a place of independence, from a place of freedom and deliver way more for your people uh, than you ever would have been able to if you had to meet with Rebney, you know, for coffee every Wednesday or whatever, <laughs> or whatever they make their candidates do. Okay. And finally, just one question. Um, what's your bet? Will Cuomo survive this? <laughs> I think what is clear is that there's not going to be some excellent fourth run. There's no way, I don't believe that there's a way in which Cuomo emerges from this a democratic hero and that there is a broad coalition for re-election. I think that in itself is really meaningful because I think as forces recognize that he will not will not be governor next term, they're able to make bets elsewhere, right? They're able to be released a bit from his grip and more things become possible. Whether he resigns or not, that is really between the governor and himself or his family because he's not listening or moving based on his Democratic allies, uh, based on clear calls for resignation. Uh, So that ultimately will be up to him. 
and we're urging the assembly to take the impeachment powers and take their constitutional duty seriously. There are multiple pathways to end the reign of Andrew Cuomo, and we have to lean in and figure this out before more people get hurt, before more documents get forged, before uh, more giveaways get given to nursing home operators on the backs of old people, working people, poor people. An intervention is necessary, and so we have a moment to make it possible. We need all hands on deck to deliver that. But ideologically, politically, his, he's kaput. He's fighting. <laughs> you know, he's a, he has a strong hold. And so the polls are shifting. And as more New Yorkers get to know the real Andrew Cuomo, his ability to deliver on a governing plan, I think, is strongly limited at this moment, as his partners in government have basically turned their backs on him. I was Sochi Namaka, director of the New York State Working Families Party. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. some of Cheerio Toodle Pip by the Toy Dolls. Next, a bit of a departure for Behind the News, a look at what the pandemic has done to our sexual and romantic lives. While a lot of attention has been paid to the physical and social damage COVID has done, one area that's gotten little attention, thanks to our lingering Puritanism, is what it's done to our libidos. Here to remedy that oversight is Susie Bright, a writer, editor, and the original sexpert, one of the first of the so-called sex-positive feminists. She also has a background in radical politics dating back to her high school days. Susie Bright. Pandemic sex. You'd think people locked up um, in doors for a year or so uh, might be um, you know, having a lot of it, but apparently not, right? At least uh, <laughs> <laughs> judging by reproduction numbers, right? Yes. You know, everyone uh, would love to know how much actual sexual activity has been going on this past Annus Horribilis. But the only data we have to look at are birth rates, which have plummeted. And it's fascinating to see that figure because it's pretty easy to extrapolate. Look, if this is how many people aren't having babies because they've put off pregnancy, they've delayed sex, they've said no to sex... And this is just the couples. And then we have the singletons who have not been hooking up because proximity to other people to have those chances is disappearing. We can take those, the uh, sort of alarming birth rate news and say, this has been a sexual apocalypse. You can't divorce those two. It's not that everyone is having uh, gay sex or oral sex and they just miss the baby part. Those, the two things, <laughs> they always move together. <laughs> and when the Guttmacher Institute uh, released the falling birth rate news, I was grateful to them because as someone who reports on sex and has done a lot of sex education, I already had this tragic volume of anecdotal emails and phone calls from friends, fans, readers, and colleagues of mine who would say, my sex life has never been this bad. Am I the only one who cares about this? You know, And they really Part of the paranoia that has happened with COVID-19 is this, is this just happening to me? There was so little acknowledgement in our last administration and in the whole world reaction to this. Because it wasn't supposed to be happening, because it was supposed to be fake, because there wasn't a big plan to do anything about it, even though your dating life wasn't on the top of anybody's CDC priority list, the fact is, is that it was affected. And the sense of loneliness and isolation of like, is anyone else having this as a symptom? We should have treated it as a symptom. 
you know, when they do those surveys saying, you know, how are you feeling? What's going on? How are you doing? Nobody says, how's your sex life? Or even a more scientific version of that. <laughs> well, you know, I remember when yes. New York, the New York City Health Department put out a little one-page sheet on uh, safe ways to have sex during a pandemic. I think a couple of other, maybe San Francisco did. Uh, I think maybe Portland. And everyone laughed at them for this. Like, this was such a trivial thing to worry about. There's this attitude that only perverts really care about this sort of thing, or sex is not that important, or whatever, right? It's, it's, it's a measure of a really broad social attitude towards sex. I'm glad you're asking the why is it important question. And then I want to get back to the letters that people got from major city uh, public health departments, because I thought those were an interesting intellectual exercise, even if most people didn't respond to them. Why is it important? Because sexuality and relationships and mental health and family are all connected in a little hive. And you can't just take one thing out and say, oh, everything's great when the other isn't working. I want to separate two groups again, the couples and the singles. For the couples, even though the number one debate among couples is how frequently do we have sex? And there's always one person who wants it more and the other person who wants it less. That happens even in normal times. The pandemic took what was already a really sensitive issue and just tortured it. People who thought, oh, well, we'll finally, you know, maybe we'll have time for each other, get to know each other. The intensity of not having anyone else to turn to, the way eroticism and intimacy can get tortured when you are in isolation with one other person who is your only partner. And then there's the background of death and isolation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. With this background of death and isolation and fear, fear of illness, has been crazy making. And it's been worse when people say, well, Susie, how would you compare it to the AIDS pandemic era, which is a really good question. On one hand, I think the people best prepared for this were those who lived proactively and politically aware through the worst of AIDS, because number one, they understood harm reduction. And they knew that anything you could do, you know, the mask was like the condom, anything you could do to bring down your level of risk rather than take an all or nothing puritanical approach, which is just disastrous. They knew harm reduction was key and also that you had to be treating the whole person, including their mental health, their sexual health, their physical health. You had to treat it all as one because knowing what was going on with them sexually and honestly was going to give you keys to how they were handling illness, risk, their support system. You can't just take it out and act like, oh, yeah, and I gave up M&Ms for Lent. That's not what giving up sex is like. Single people, as I said, it's been a case of shame, puritanism, and lack of proximity, right? The way people get laid is by being able to meet other people, be around other people. If you're told it's a death sentence and everyone is watching you and you have no privacy and nowhere to go to pull it off, (laughs) it's really something. The places where I have seen outlaw sex going on are so off the map. It's kind of reminds me, I don't know if this is happening in the streets of New York, but it is here out in California. There's been a lot of this, what do you call it? Badass street racing with cars playing chicken doing daredevil stunts in regular traffic regular streets and it's highly illegal it's totally illegal no one is ever going to say yes give this some cover from respectable sports never and that has been what sex has been like for those who didn't want to pay any attention to the protocols it has been very taboo very hidden, no harm reduction whatsoever, and high risk without being able to ever like talk about it afterwards, like what happened. Well, you mentioned the AIDS precedent, but uh, most straight people during that period thought that hey, not my problem. <laughs> you know, well, you know, that was a, a, a preview, wasn't it, of how our public could do that. It's not my problem. You know, it's not my zip code. I don't have gay sex. I don't have this. I don't have that. I'm in a gated community. It will never happen to me. And every time we saw this Trumpaholic red state parades of people saying, you'll never take this away from me, you know, like it, it, it has just became 
comical of like, okay, see you at your funeral. See you at your family's funeral. I could almost ask you this back to you, Doug. How do you philosophically deal with denial? I felt like AIDS, when you look back on it, the fact that we mobilized and fought the preconceptions and were able to get out a sophisticated public health message and were able to get out a sense of what it meant to do harm reduction, even as quickly as we did, I'm very proud of it. It seemed like it wasn't fast enough at the time. It did take years though, to get that out, didn't it? Yeah, it took years, but it was vociferous and organized from the beginning. Here we have a situation where people were have been isolated. Those who wanted the most to do something about it on a policy level and on an organizing level faced tremendous obstacles to doing public education. And our number one federal advice bank that we would turn to, CDC, I mean, it was just turned into a, a broken toy. Now they're starting to do a few things that I'd actually like people to listen to, but I don't know what to say because it's like the boy cried wolf. I spent all last year saying, if you see a press release from the CDC, it is garbage. It means nothing. No doctor agrees with it. Just put it aside. You know, it was it was that bad. I have talked to people about, okay, you're in a difficult sex situation with the pandemic. You have, you know, sort of have to have your short-term view and your long-term view. I think the notices people got from the public health departments in New York and San Francisco, partly they were funny because they were very uh, they were very nuanced and a very sophisticated sex. Not that many people are going to go, oh, really? Right. Yeah, I could wear a mask and do X, Y, and Z. You know, that, that, that weren't like just straight missionary position sex with your beloved monogamous partner. And people would read it and go, how kinky do I have to be to, you know, do these things? So in some ways, I felt like, well, this is public educators doing something that this event prompts them to do, right? When your training is how do you have sex and how do you do public sex education under really difficult, stringent problems? What can you advise people? And in some cases, I, I actually knew a couple of people who said, we have to plan a pregnancy this year. I mean, they were extremely unusual people, but they were like, this is our last chance. If we're going to do this, we're going to have to plan it. And we don't get want to get sick. So how can we procreate this year? That was a big deal for some people. They don't talk about it because they know everyone thinks they're pointless. But believe me, anyone who had a successful pregnancy this last year, my hat is off to them. It has been so difficult to do. So difficult on every level, especially for the woman carrying the child. Then when you think about, well, what about everybody else? It's a matter of, I think now, asking people, it's 2021, how are you going to get your mojo back, right? I mean, some of us are looking forward to being fully vaccinated. Some of us are looking forward to socializing, talking to people, having, you know, small groups, parties. And by small, people are saying, well, what is small? I'm like, when the feds tell you small, they mean don't go to the rock concert. They mean, you know, don't go to the mega church. Small just means like a normal party at your house. Don't worry about it. People are like, oh, Susie, I'm worried. Well, I don't know whether I can have 10 people or 11 people. I'm like this. That's not the kind of numbers we're talking about. I'm speaking with the writer, editor, and original sexpert, Susie Bright. Sex, of course, is like an index of a lot of human relationships. What's been going on with those? What do you hear from people? You have a lot of correspondence. What are people telling you about their, their relationships along with the sex? I tend to hear from a member of a couple who has sacrificed their sexuality because they say their partner has no libido. They'll say, my partner, you know, oh my God, I, I feel so sorry for them. I love them so much. They lost a parent, the dog died, you know, everything has gone wrong. Of course, I'm not going to, you know, pull them into bed and say, hey, baby, have an orgasm and get over it. <laughs> like I, they're the sensitive types. They aren't overbearing, but they feel so lonely and they don't know whether they're ever going to return to it. I've had people ask me, am I headed for a breakup or is, you know, you know, the flower's going to bloom and their libido will come back. And I actually have some very specific answers to that. 
people who had a hot relationship originally, like when they first got together, whether that was two years ago or 20 years ago, but people who got off to a good chemical start in their libidinous feelings for each other are the ones who are in the best place to recover from this. Even if they like, well, it's been so long. I'm like, those memories and the ability to have fun together and to know that once you start having sex, things start moving, that is key. Those memories are key. And the fact that you, at some point, really knew how to please each other, that is critical. For people who say they were on thin ice to begin with, you know, that their primary reason for being together had never really been the sex, you know, they always thought the sex would get better. Maybe they had one or two times that were okay, but they were best friends. They depended on each other. They wanted to have a family. They seemed ideal for other reasons, and they thought the sex would come. I'm afraid you're statistically, your chances of recovering from a non-combustible libido to begin with are, are really tough. This pandemic just kind of accelerated a problem that you're already aware about. Now, when people say, but I really, you know, want, let's say the less interested partner, the, the person with the low libido says, no, seriously, I want to change. I seriously want to change. I feel like my life is in the balance if I don't recover my libido because I need to express my devotion to my partner and my commitment to this relationship. If that is truly what you think, and it's not just a lot of hot air, I would say it is true that experienced therapy really helps. It is true that having a hormone assessment and then having a particular, very specific hormone cocktail just for you will definitely change you. You can't just squeeze a tube of testosterone cream all over your body and think, okay, I'm ready. I'll be horny in five minutes. You need to actually get assessed. It's not something you can figure out in your room uh, all by yourself. But those things, the desire to feel desire, if you really have it, you don't have to be bereft. You will have to seek support for it because you're not just going to one day wake up and feel it. That does not happen. The only thing you can do on your own, which a lot of people already do, but it's interesting to mention it. For some people, they say, look, here's the problem with my libido. I don't feel desire just walking around. If I intentionally start touching myself and doing physical things that would get me aroused, if I can get to that first base, then everything will kind of move along from there. And if someone tells me that, then I say, well, then you just have to be willing. You have to be willing to do the, the so-called foreplay, you know, the, the first pieces. Whatever you do that starts the clock ticking, you know that within five minutes of doing that effectively, and then you don't have to think about it anymore. You know, you can just be your normal self and just have, have a ball. But it's that initial thing of like, do I... Now, when people are, are depressed, though, they often just don't want to get things started. So. Exactly. That's the thing. You don't, you're depressed. I mean, we think about depression with this pandemic in a million ways. You know, we're like, oh, I'm supposed to exercise. Oh, I'm supposed to read a novel. I'm supposed to have sex. Well, I don't want to do any of it. I know the right? feeling. Just being, you know, just so uh, self-defeating and self-defeated at every turn. So... What I would say then, I mean, I have a, I'll, I'll give you my top chemical trick, but I will also say that the, the best trick of all is to simply say, I'm going to have fun. Oh, it's Saturday, or I have this morning to myself, or, you know, whatever. I'm going to have fun. And then you simply do what genuinely seems fun to you. Fun leads to eroticism. It always does. You know, you just start doing something like, oh, I want to. I want to go out. I want to do this. Now that's been inhibited because of the pandemic. But now, and especially if you've gotten comfortable wearing a mask, you're going to go out, go out and do something that just appeals to you in a very selfish way. If it involves other people or being outside or anything that involves getting out of your chair, you know, there was something fun that isn't reading your screen at home. Like it has to be something besides that takes you into the world and sexual opportunity will follow from there inevitably inevitably the other thing i like to to tease some people who are open to it i say if you want to know what the number one cocktail is 
for desires, especially with women who so often feel like the inhibition part in the beginning is the hardest part. Caffeine and cannabis. Caffeine and cannabis. <laughs> Can't say this enough. I'm not saying this just because I laid around and figured it out for myself. No, 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 no. This is like from the experts. I um Well, you're listen, an expert. No, no, no. More experts than me. People who really know the pharmaceuticals. That it's because the caffeine adds that motivation, that alertness, the sense of wanting to get busy, to do something, to be to move. And the cannabis has both an anti-anxiety effect, which has been crippling us, and it has the psychotropic imaginative effects, which just adds a little playfulness. So those two things are an interesting combo. As long as you're willing, being able to take a physical step here or, or you know, pop something in your mouth there, you know, all of it has to come from a place of saying it would, it's worth it. For those who are like, oh, I'm just being guilt tripped by my partner. I know I should have sex, but I don't want to. And I just feel bad. Well, you can stay in that place forever. For me, I would be too impatient. I would either want to say, I'm going to give this libido thing a, a whirl. I'm actually going to try something. Or I would be considerate enough of my partner. I'd be honest and humble enough to say, listen, I probably would be happier if we didn't have a sexual burden, an obligation in our relationship. I love you. I want to be your family. I want to raise our kids. I want to do this. I want to do that. But it's not fair to like let you believe that maybe someday I'll say yes when I just don't, I don't know if I feel that way, even though I love you so much. That way, if you can say that, then your partner, the one who has the sexual desire, can say, oh, Okay, well, then let me think about that. At least they have the power to think about it, to make a decision instead of the decision being tacitly and dishonestly already made for them. They need a chance to say, of course, I love you too. And we've been through so much together. Let me think about that. That is a conversation that very few couples have. I recommend it. It isn't wrong that the person with a lower libido has a lower libido. In some ways, you can say it's they didn't make it up by themselves. It is a biological urge, nor is it their responsibility to service the other person, like doing their laundry, you know, getting you off. It is not their responsibility. The only thing that is their responsibility is to get real about where they see things going and give the other partner a chance to say, wow, okay, uh, let's negotiate this. I want to stay. I don't want to stay. I want to stay, but I want to have some new room to move here. You know, it, who knows what it could be. Okay. I wanted to conclude this by asking how we get out of this, but it just struck me as I was thinking of that, that a lot of what we've been talking about, the loneliness, the lack of libido, the isolation, alienation, <laughs> depression, all these things pre-existed the pandemic. Yes. And the pandemic has only made it worse, but it's not going to be easy to bounce back from this. I mean, there's some people say we're going to go through a roaring 20s period in reaction to this. I don't know. What do you think? How much of this is just an intensification of the pre-existing normal? And what can we expect coming out of it? I'm glad you braced this because I find the silver lining to crises like that is that a pandemic puts existing problems into stark relief. You know, like I said, is this new that, that couples argue over sexual frequency in their relationship? Absolutely not. But now it's just reached tsunami-like proportions. It's unreal. How do you come back from that? Well, it means you have to get back to basics. It means you have to assess your own sexuality through your solo sex life, through finding out where you are at when no one's watching, what actually is turning you on today, right now, in your mind and in your own you know, response. A lot of people don't even know. They've let their depression and their sense of hopelessness get the best of them. Your partner, if you have one, and what you're going to do about that, second thing. I am looking forward to a roaring 20s. There will be, among some demographics, there's going to be a lot of fun. I hope to be one small part of it. Um, <laughs> we deserve it. And I completely refute 
the puritanical Debbie Downers that are already crowding the corners. You know, all those people are like, just because you're fully vaccinated, you should still be miserable and never, ever talk to anybody or meet anyone. Maybe you can, maybe you can hug your grandchild because that is virtuous. There do seem to be some people who are in love with this situation. It's really... I don't have any grandchildren. I wish I did. Don't. I'm going to be hugging other people. I may be even doing full body trividism. Who knows? Being able to think that you will be affectionate, sexual, flirtatious with other people. Here's a bombshell. It's good for our species. It's good for our intellectual and social life. It's good for us philosophically. There should be more people, not just me and you, who are saying, you know, maybe sexual health has something to do with public health. And there's going to be many of us who are involved in saying, okay, what do you do if you're still a little shy? But a lot of it is going to be having role models and not letting the people who are like, you can't, you know, there's just not enough vaccines and PPE for them to stop doomsaying about everything. Will there be people taking unreasonable risks? Yes. And that's the fault of the same conditions that I expressed earlier. A puritanical world like we live in has not helped people make good decisions. We need to keep talking about harm reduction, but also talk about taking advantage of the blossoms of spring, the promise of summer, the the genuine sweet things that are about to happen. It's going to be so meaningful. I'm somebody who's been on both sides of that frequency debate in my own relationships. I find that having been on both sides, it makes you really sympathetic to the other person. You can't get on your high horse. And uh, empathy also just allows um, some sexual optimism. It really does. Maybe start with empathy. We could just start there. That's not too much to ask. It either is or it's the hardest thing to ask, and then go from there. That was Susie Bright, the author and sex pundit. For more on her work, see susiebright.com. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, Some of Libido by Naked Raygun. Till next week, bye. <laughs>